You're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countrymen. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our place to talk about some of the episodes from this season of 30 for 30 Podcasts, and today we're discussing Madden's Game, the documentary about the creation of the Madden video game franchise. 30 for 30's Andrew Mambo was the lead producer on this episode, and he is your host for today. He spoke with Dave Newpower of NFL Films, who produced this episode, and audio producer Emma Jacobs, also part of the team that put it together. So here's Andrew talking with Dave and Emma. Andrew, take it away. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thanks. So congratulations on the story. It's sounding great. And I just wanted to ask you guys, you know, what's one of the things you thought going into this story that you kind of learned in the process of it? Uh, You know, at Films, we've done a lot of work with John Madden over the years, and I'm fairly familiar with his story, but I hadn't realized the depth and extent to which he was involved with the Madden video game right from the very beginning. So that was an interesting discovery process for me. Um. So Dave is immersed in this stuff all the time. He works on football full time. I am not. So I would say that the learning curve for me was was huge. The first call I had with Dave, his first question to me was, do you watch football? And and I was like, no. And then his second question to me was, do you play video games? And I was like, no. So throughout this, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out how to translate it to people like me who aren't coming with a lot of background knowledge on the topic. Did that make you nervous, Dave? <laughs> uh, no, it was, you know, it was great. I just wanted to understand where I was coming from. And I think it's really important for me as someone who's immersed in it, it's really easy to take stuff for granted. And so it, it's, it was really helpful to have Emma's perspective throughout the process in terms of uh, that's not going to translate to some of us. So in the reporting, I know you guys talked to, you know, a number of people. You guys went through a lot of archival, you know, kind of footage. Um What's one piece of tape that you guys kind of have either through archival, past interviews, interviews you did that just didn't make it into the final story? So I would say the whole David Hill interview, he's such a fun talker. He's got such a fun sort of Australian accent at this point. John was like that best friend sitting there, and he wanted you to know that at Lambeau Field, by God, it was cold. But but what makes it better is the smoke that's coming in, and they're barbecuing the brats. It was one of those interviews where you're just like, well, I could run this straight. I could run an hour of this. So so that was a pretty painful cutting down process. And to Emma's point, the David Hill interview is great, and specifically he, he talked about esports. And I wasn't really familiar with esports and kind of the notion of competitive gaming. And uh, he had done some work with esports and spoke highly of the future of esports. And I thought there were some pretty compelling bites that wound up not making the show, but they they were interesting. Video games are going to take over and become more popular than regular sports. You could be looking at a situation in 2040 when the final of Madden 2040 has as big an audience as the Super Bowl. So when you hear David Hill saying that he thinks that esports is going to be something that's more popular than the Super Bowl, what what did you think when he said that? I thought that's interesting and bold. <laughs> but I mean, he's he's always been interesting and bold. He's always been uh, sort of at the the visionary forefront. So he's got a long history as a producer of television of kind of seeing something that's around the corner. And so I certainly wouldn't dismiss it. I think, you know, he tends to be onto something. Can you talk about both of you, and either you can start, but can can you just talk about your favorite moments in reporting out this story, 
you know, whether that's like something that came out of an interview or something that you found, what was one that a moment that kind of sticks out for you guys in this uh, reporting process? Oh, gosh, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, I would say going back to David Hill, there are certain people you just recognize are so entertaining to listen to. And so, you know, as soon as we got out of that interview, we were just like, all right, well, we have some really great material to work with. It was interesting to listen to someone who makes TV talk really consciously about their decision-making process of what elements they bring, you know, putting mics around the field, because I don't think I, I, as someone who's making produced audio, don't think of live television as working a lot like, like we do in terms of being very conscious of the different elements going mm. into it. I, you you are alluding to one of my favorite moments that I kind of didn't realize in terms of like a really enlightening thing for me was that realization of how they had changed the sound of a broadcast around the time when David Hill kind of came there. That was really fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I, and and doing the research into that, you know, going through all the old network footage, listening to the games from the 80s and 90s, we kind of have all that stuff in our archives. And then hearing the difference between 93 and 94, just a year, going from CBS to Fox, it really was striking. Now, they didn't have no gun mics before Fox, but they had sort of selective gun mics. I don't know how many they had on the field, but for most of the broadcast, you wouldn't hear it. You know, when they're on the other side of the field, you don't hear anything. And then obviously when you get to Fox, they're everywhere. And so no matter what yard line they're on, you're hearing that. And when we've told that story in the past, we usually focus on the fact that he added the score box in 94, because that's the visual thing that you can easily see. And and the sort of sound thing doesn't really translate to television as cleanly, but it was perfect for this. You know, the yeah. other thing that we couldn't get in that was a great story he told was that when he put in that box with the time, that everyone was really upset. All these viewers were really upset. They, he said he was getting death threats. Yeah. And what do you say he had a meeting with the, was it the FBI? Right, probably over his death threats. And uh, they say, well, you should take this really seriously. And he says, why? And they say, because they're they're spelled correctly, which right. I guess is a cue for them that these are more serious, less less crazy um, wow. critics. Yeah. Yeah. What did you call them? So wait, so he had all these death threats just from putting that one thing in, in the game. Yeah, sort of old school viewers, you know, felt like he was corrupting the game. He was turning it into a video game. They don't want a video. You know, they're the 55-year-old viewer doesn't want his his game to look like a video game whereas you know obviously the you know your your younger viewer might might love it but it's probably not too different than you know experimenting with the with the Madden cam that NBC you know has done now it's you know for people who are used to watching the profile perspective of the game it's probably not very comfortable for them but for a younger viewer it feels like home mm. so can you guys kind of speak to a story that you know you started kind of like digging out a little bit and you didn't get a chance to dig any further that you, you know, maybe in a subsequent story, you'd like to like check it out a little bit more? So um, one of the things I really would have loved to do, but we were told, you know, the, the coaches were not going to be happy about having us in would be to go see these training situations they now set up with VR, with elements that might come out of Madden or other sorts of simulations to help the players work on on different, you know, elements of their game. And that would have been a really fun scene to include. So the so the coaches and trainers like they have can you kind of paint a picture for me there? What what's really happening? They're they're the players have like virtual reality headsets on and they're going through game film or are they I like I think so. 
And again, they're a little protective of this. This is, you know, their own their own methods that they've developed. But that that I think is is we would have loved to go to a stadium during practice and see how exactly these guys actually use this because it's part of the way, you know, in theory that the the video game is impacting what happens on the field. Yeah, and I feel like it, that ties to, I mean, in the last 10 or however many years, 15 years, you've seen that real push towards cognitive training. So there's all cognitive training of all of all kinds. I know it was out at Nike however long ago, and they had, you know, all kind of cognitive training in the facility. And so I think a lot of people are doing that, and it really is just trying to trying to get players into the habit of recognizing what they see. And it's a lot easier to do it with a headset on than it is to run people out there for you know, however long it takes and run through the, the reps with actual human beings where everybody's having to spend their time doing this. Everybody can instead just put on a headset hmm. and get mental reps. How common is that in, in the league? I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think it's common enough that most, if not all, teams have it, or at least I know at least I know of a number of teams who have it. I don't know how often they use it or anything like that. That's an interesting little thread to, that, that would be nice to pull at, I think. I mean, I, I would have killed to be able to get into one of these practice sessions. <laughs> uh, part two. Um, can you actually speak a bit about one, one of the things that I, I kind of found out through this process that was interesting was about John Madden's you know, fear of flying, which you kind of allude to and mention in, in the episode, but there wasn't enough time to kind of get into it. Do you want to speak a bit more on that? Yeah, it's a shame. That was that was one of our one of the late cuts. Is is him recounting kind of that story, and it really was just claustrophobia. He said, um, where uh, when he was a coach, they flew all the time, but he he flew on chartered team jets where he could kind of get up and move around. And then once he got into broadcasting, uh, he was stuck on commercial jets where you really nobody's happy with you getting up and moving around much. I uh, I flew all the time when I coached. And then uh, after I got out, uh, I, I had a flight. It was smooth as heck, and this feeling just came over me. And I didn't know what it was, but I couldn't say I had to get out of there. And uh, it was uh, a panic attack. And so I made a deal that, you know, if I, get, if I get through this, I'll never get on another airplane if I get through this alive. And so we landed in Houston. And I got off, went to a hotel, took a train home, and uh, never got another airplane. Obviously, later he became very well known for uh, for the Madden Cruiser, but for a time he took trains. And um, one one fun part about it that uh, I thought was interesting that actually got cut er- earlier on was the whole idea that he had been doing that for a year. He'd been taking trains for a year, and you know that he'd just say to them, "Oh, where where's the next game you have me at? Oh, I got to be in Dallas. Okay, uh, I'll be there. Do you need us to pick you up from the airport? No, no, no. I'm fine. Yeah, I- I'll be at the hotel." He didn't specify. He just kind of let it to people's imagination. He said, "He said, you know, it was funny how people just assume that you're going to fly, and then even when he would be there, they just yeah. assumed he had flown. You know, kind of thing." Yeah. It's kind of a charmingly human thing too that this this guy who otherwise we've been saying throughout lives kind of a charmed life and is kind of a larger than life figure that he gets claustrophobic. It's sort of his, his one flaw. I guess like my, my last question is just what else about this topic kind of is out there that maybe you, what guys would suggest people like read up or listen to or, or watch or anything like that? Well, I can definitely give a plug for uh, a football life, which we recently produced about John Madden. 
it's, it's an interesting show, and again, it's a. Uh, there's it touches on on the game with in his in his work with EA, but obviously it's a much a broader and deeper perspective on his life, and you know it's a fascinating story of a guy who's who's uh, who's made a huge impact on the game. I think a much much bigger impact than people might might realize. I know Mike Micah said in our interview that a hundred years from now people might mistake uh, John Madden for the inventor of football because his his impact. And his ongoing impact, the, the sense in which his legacy is then tied to this game, which, uh, you know, continues to be produced uh, indefinitely, uh, is remarkable. It makes him sort of the, the Lombardi of this generation. No, I, and I agree. I think, like, uh, Football Life on Madden was, was a really great episode and really enlightening to me. A lot of things I didn't, I didn't know about him. Um, Okay, well, this has been really great, guys. Again, producer Dave Newpower from NFL Films and producer Emma Jacobs. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank Thank you. you for talking more about the project. Well, that's it for this episode of 30 for 30 Plus. We'll be back on Tuesday with a new audio documentary. And don't forget, there's lots more at 30for30podcast.com. I'm Andrew Mambo, and thanks again for listening. 